Fascinating people, fascinating places. G'day and welcome to the Dan Mainwaring Podcast. This is where we talk to and about the famous and the infamous, the celebrated and the obscure, the well-known and the undiscovered. Interviews, articles and discussions from around the globe. On the 28th of June, 1914, a young Serb named Gravillo Princip sat outside a delicatessen in Sarajevo, reflecting on his role in a botched assassination attempt on Archduke Ferdinand, heir to the Austro-Hungarian Empire. To his surprise, the intended target suddenly came back into view. This time, there would be no mistake. He calmly approached the car, and fired two shots. One at Ferdinand, the other at his wife Sophie. Each proved fatal. This violent crime, which led directly to the outbreak of World War I, wasn't the act of a lone wolf gunman. It was just the latest and most devastating in a series of terrorist acts performed by members of the Serbian Black Hand. In this episode, I explore the shadowy group's origins, their activities, and how their ultimate dream was realized in 1918, though few of them were alive to see it. To understand the Black Hand, you have to look back at the history of the Serbian people. The ancestors of the Serbs were Slavic tribes, who made their way into the Balkans during the 5th and 6th centuries to AD. It was a rough neighbourhood, having long been fought over by groups including Greeks, Dacians, Goths and Romans. Sitting on the frontier of Europe and Asia, the area soon attracted more unwelcome marauders, from places such as Hungary and Turkey. But while the Serbs evolved a distinct culture that separated them from other Slavs such as the Croats and Slovenes, it was the Ottoman conquest of the Balkans that helped to forge their identity. With it came Islam. The Slavs to the north, Croatians and Slovenes, fell into the laps of Austro-Hungarians and widely adopted the Catholic religion. The Serbs, though, mostly clung on to the Orthodox Christianity that had dominated the Balkans for centuries. Many of them were forced into slavery under the Ottomans or forced to convert to Islam. But as a group, they resolutely held on to a dream of independence. Uprisings and bloody revolution followed, as both the Austro-Hungarians and Turks struggled to pacify the Serbs. Independence was ultimately realised in 1878, when the world powers formally recognised Serbia as a nation-state. But even then, there was a catch. The new nation only covered a portion of the lands the Serbs occupied. To the north... Vojvodina was retained by Austro-Hungary, along with Bosnia-Herzegovina and parts of Montenegro, while the Ottomans remained in charge of Kosovo and Macedonia. Under the terms of the Congress of Berlin, the world power's acknowledgement of Serbia was contingent on the fledgling nation retaining its borders and refraining from any attempts to expand into neighbouring Slavic lands. Needless to say, centuries of war and oppression 
had seen Serbs disseminate widely through the Balkans. And there were many residents of Kosovo, Bosnia and Austro-Hungary who sought to join an expanded Serbian state. But the Kingdom of Serbia had internal divisions. These came to a head in 1893 when the teen Prince Alexander declared himself of full age and seized the crown that had been vacated by his father. Alexander forged good relations with Austro-Hungary, something that upset his subjects since over two million Serbs were living as second-class citizens under Viennese rule. But the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back came in 1900, when he decided to marry a woman named Draga Malsin. She was much older than him, believed to be infertile, and notorious for her sexual exploits. It wasn't dissimilar to Edward VIII marrying the thrice-divorced Wallace Simpson decades later. The marriage would likely leave the king with no heir, and the fear was that he would choose his wife's brother to succeed him on the throne. He was despised by the military for demanding men salute him, and for the fact he'd once murdered a policeman. Essentially, Alexander dragged the nation into disrepute by marrying a woman who was viewed as a harlot and whose family were violent thugs. In reality, Alexander had agreed to leave Serbia to his Montenegrin royal cousin if the marriage proved childless, but neither a Montenegrin prince nor the queen's blackguard brother were suitable candidates in the eyes of many in the military. Prominent among the king's critics was a Serbian army captain named Dragutin Dmitrievich. He'd been a star student at the Belgrade Military Academy, and his tough physique earned him the nickname Apis, a reference to the Egyptian bull god. In 1901, Dmitrievich pulled together a group of sympathetic soldiers and politicians and began plotting the assassination of the monarch. Early attempts proved fruitless, but in 1903, he and a group of soldiers brazenly stormed the royal palace. The king and his wife were killed. For his part, Dmitrievich took three bullets that he later claimed were never removed. The murder of a monarch wasn't a highly unusual event in Eastern Europe at that time. In fact, assassinations were fairly commonplace. This particular act was widely supported, and Dmitrievich was even hailed by the parliament as the hero of the nation. But more significant than the assassination was the fact it elevated him to the role of kingmaker. The allies who cooperated and supported the attack became his henchmen in an informal, underground, deep state that sought to pull the strings in the country. The kind of shadowy group that would give QAnon believers nightmares. The obvious beneficiary of the assassination was the newly installed King Peter I. He had earned his stripes fighting the Ottomans, and like Dmitrievich, was a nationalist. On the international scene, he was quickly embraced by Russia, a country that had long claimed the right to protect orthodox interests in the Balkans. Austria-Hungary reacted coolly to the coup, officially adopting a neutral stance. But the United Kingdom demanded the perpetrators be brought to justice. Despite condemning the actual killings, King Peter had neither the appetite nor the standing to act against Dmitrievich. Consequently, the captain was allowed to travel to Germany and Russia, where he studied military programs. His research was part of his greater plan. He, like many Balkan Slavs before him, 
had a grand vision of a united Slavic state, a concept that would later become known as Yugo, meaning South, Slavia, meaning Slavic. In 1908, Austria-Hungary further stoked the fires by formally annexing Bosnia-Herzegovina, a territory it had effectively dominated since it slipped out of Ottoman hands half a century earlier. The move enraged Serbian nationalists, a number of whom formed a new group, Narodna Odbrana, meaning People's Defence. They set about raising money, establishing paramilitary groups, and using propaganda to spread the concept of Serbian nationalism. Despite the fact that it was Austro-Hungarian Empire that was obviously the cause of their ire, they claimed to have no ill will against the emperor. They just wanted to promote their own people's rights. The group included people such as Branislav Nutic, who'd led protests against the annexation of Bosnia, as well as Minister of War Stepa Stepanovic, who'd angered nationalists by explaining that Serbia was not equipped to go to war over Bosnia. The group was theoretically more moderate than Dmitrievich's group, but they still served to inspire terrorist acts in Bosnia. Under pressure from Vienna, as well as Serbia's ally Russia, which also wished to avoid conflict, the government took steps to curb the group's activities. But the group continued to operate, and in 1911, it released a provocative statement that made its aims clear. The Narodna Odbrana proclaims to the people that Austria is our first and greatest enemy. Just as once the Turks attacked us from the south, so Austria attacks us today from the north. In the same year, Bogdan Rudenkovic helped to forge a rival and more militant group called Unification or Death, or as it was more commonly known, the Black Hand. Rudenkovic had tried his hand at effecting political change through peaceful means. In 1908, he'd been selected as the head of the Serb Democratic League, a political group within the Ottoman Empire that, among other things, demanded equal representation for Serbs, Greeks and Bulgarians in Parliament. Those pleas fell on deaf ears, as did a request to stop Turks attacking the Serbs in Kosovo. The Turks blame reports of the attacks, 60,000 Serbs and other Christians have been massacred, as hysteria, or the work of Albanian nationalists. Discouraged, Radenkovic, along with military officers, Vojslav Tankosic, Ljubu Kupa, and of course, Dmitrievic or Apis, were the ringleaders of the new group, which was publicly acknowledged as the Black Hand in the Serb parliament later in 1911. Within a matter of months, the Black Hand had established ties with Nadorna Odbrana, and it's been claimed that the Black Hand deliberately tried to muddy the waters and create the impression the two groups were one and the same. In truth, the earlier group held more clout, counting ministers like Stepanovich in its ranks, but by exaggerating ties between the groups, the Black Hand helped to establish its own credibility as a Serbian nationalist force. Almost immediately, Dmitrievich devised a plot to assassinate the Austrian Emperor Franz Josef. But the plans petered out, and the attentions of the group and the government soon shifted south. After the Austrian annexation of Bosnia, the Ottomans had invited Muslims to take up residence in Macedonia. There, the new arrivals met other Muslims, Albanian nationalists, 
who were eager to break free from Ottoman rule. An uprising occurred that soon drew in other Balkan states, including Serbia. The allied Balkan nations were soon victorious, and the Ottomans all but lost their foothold in the region. With new territories up for grabs, the Serbian government saw an opportunity to start forging a Yugoslavia. But the situation was far more complex than the plotters in Belgrade seemed to realise. King Peter I had pledged to build an enlarged Serbian state where Christians and Muslims would be treated equally. But many of the Muslims felt closer to the Albanians who had just gained independence and had aspirations of absorbing Balkan Muslims into a greater Albanian state. Meanwhile, Bulgaria and Greece both had claims on territories within Macedonia. After centuries of Ottoman rule, the regions in question were thoroughly cosmopolitan, so an equitable agreement based on a plebiscite was unlikely to be found. At the Treaty of London, Serbia and Greece settled their differences and reluctantly ceded occupied territory to Albania. But the Bulgarians were dissatisfied with the treaty and went to war with their neighbours in 1913. However, the aggressors overextended themselves when they also launched forays into Romania, and it wasn't long before the Ottomans took advantage of the turmoil to attack Bulgaria. Another treaty was negotiated, which saw the size of Serbia roughly doubled, with the annexation of Vardor, Macedonia, a territory which is today known as Northern Macedonia. Officially, Dmitrievich stayed out of the Balkan conflict, but reports suggest he sent men disguised as Albanians to commit political assassinations and terrorist attacks during the conflict. The idea being to achieve his aims while setting up the Albanians as patsies in the event of reprisals. More publicly, the Black Hand continued its operation, producing a newsletter named Piedmont, a name inspired by the province that had driven the Italian drive for unification a century prior. New recruits were divided into cells, comprising a handful of men who were governed by local committees and ultimately by the executive committee in Belgrade. The creation of splinter cells was designed to keep knowledge of the group's membership to a minimum. If one man was arrested, he could at best name two or three other members of the group, which in reality had hundreds of members. The cells received instruction in paramilitary warfare and guerrilla tactics. New members were forced to swear an oath of allegiance, which read in part, I further swear by God, by my honour and by my life, that I shall unconditionally carry into effect all its orders and commands. I further swear by God, by my honour and by my life, that I shall keep within myself all the secrets of this organisation and carry them with me into my grave. By now, Dmitrievich was a chief general staff intelligence officer in the Serbian army, a position which gave him access to sensitive information. Despite the secret nature of his group, the Black Hand was an open secret, even receiving financial support from Prince Alexander, the son and heir of the king. Likewise, Prime Minister Nikola Pasic received extreme criticism for not pushing harder for the territorial expansion after the Balkans War, seemingly in defiance of the Black Hand. Essentially, the Black Hand was like the Mafia in southern Italy. People were aware of it, 
theatre and can point to instances of its influence and actions. But no public figures are likely to out themselves as members of the mob. And so it was with the Black Hand. Coming up, Archduke Ferdinand makes an ill-timed trip that shakes the entire world. Here is a sneak peek of our next episode. President, just a year ago, you welcomed me to Bucharest as the first American president ever to visit Romania. Today, I'm very honored to welcome you to Washington, D.C. as the first president of Romania ever to visit the United States of America. On the 21st of December, 1989, Romanian President Nicolae Ceausescu the moderate friend of the West, who'd been knighted in Denmark and the United Kingdom, who'd condemned the Soviet invasion of Czechoslovakia and snubbed the Warsaw Pact, stepped out onto a balcony overlooking Palace Square in Bucharest. In the weeks prior, communist regimes across Eastern Europe had fallen like dominoes in a popular wave of revolution, cheered on by governments in the West. Despite his supposed credentials as a moderate, Bucharest was seemingly impervious to change. Thousands of raucous supporters greeted him as they held his portrait aloft and waved communist flags in the air. But Ceausescu had not come to praise the revolution. He had come to bury it. A sudden commotion at the back of the crowd caught his attention. Panicked citizens, spooked by gunfire or firecrackers, began rushing forward. As they did so, the unnerved Ceausescu lost his train of thought. The mood in the square quickly turned and portraits of the president were trampled underfoot as cries of revolution rang out. In this episode, I explore Romania, 1989. While Serbia wrestled with the murky world of deep state infiltration of politics, Archduke Ferdinand, the heir to the Austro-Hungarian crown, announced that he would visit Sarajevo in Bosnia-Herzegovina. News of the visit set alarm bells ringing in Belgrade. During the trip, Ferdinand was due to inspect the military. Dmitrievich feared this was an indication that the Austrians planned to invade Serbia. The date of the visit, 28th of June, though dismissed by Ferdinand as inconsequential, was highly symbolic to the Serbs. Vidovan Day, as it's known in Serbia, marks the Battle of Kosovo when the Serbs fought the Ottomans in 1389. It also happens to be the day when Serbia declared war on the Ottomans, leading to independence. It's both a national and a religious holiday on account of the Christian martyrs lost fighting the Turks. Suffice to say, it was the worst possible day for an occupying power to visit an area predominantly populated by Serbs. At best, it was seen as Ferdinand thumbing his nose at Belgrade. To the Black Hand members, it seemed like a provocation for war. Ferdinand's trip 
was all the more surprising as nobody believed the Black Hand's activities were limited purely to Serbian territory. In 1910, a member of the Young Bosnians, a group affiliated with the Black Hand, attempted to kill the governor of Bosnia. An assassination attempt on the governor of Croatia followed just a year later. As a higher profile target in dangerous territory, Archduke Ferdinand was at risk. Nonetheless, he seemed less concerned about war than many of his countrymen. Indeed, he said a war with Serbia would be costly in terms of life and achieve nothing. He also had aspirations to reform the empire and increase representation of the menagerie of ethnic groups. Whether Dmitrievich and his co-conspirators knew this and didn't care is unknown. What we do know is that a specific plot was soon developed by a group including a young Bosnian Serb named Gavrilo Princip. Like many, he grew up in a devastatingly poor family under Habsburg rule. He tried to join the Serb army, but was rejected due to his short height and frail build. His heart, though, was much larger than his body, and he became a passionate supporter of Serbian rights. In 1911, he developed a morbid fascination, Bogdan Zerijic, his compatriot who tried and failed to kill the governor of Bosnia before killing himself. His claim that Princip would regularly visit his grave and dreamt of committing a similar act. His moment came when he read about Ferdinand's upcoming visit in a Belgrade newspaper. He immediately concocted an assassination plan and shared it with two like-minded contemporaries, Nadjelko Kragbrinovich and Trifko Grabez. The men had the desire, but not the means, to pull off the attack until a mutual acquaintance introduced them to Milan Siganovic, a key figure in the Black Hand. The three would-be assassins had certainly been involved with young Bosnia beforehand, but it's unclear whether or not they had officially joined the Black Hand before meeting Siganovic. Now this is where it all gets a bit murky, because as you might expect, Shadowy groups like the Black Hand don't publish the minutes of their meetings. But it's been suggested that Siganovich approached Dmitrievich's right-hand man, Major Tankosic, who sought Dmitrievich's consent before providing Siganovich with guns, bombs and poison, the latter intended for self-consumption in the event of capture. Siganovich trained the men in how to use the weapons, but Dmitrievich, seemingly satisfied with the plan, said, let these boys go to Sarajevo. After failed attempts to kill regional governors, this time the Black Hand affiliates developed what seemed like a sure-proof plan. Five armed assassins would be spread out along the route taken by Ferdinand. In the event the first one missed the target, the second would strike, and so on. The first assailant had a panic attack and took no action. The second, Kabrinovich, hurled a bomb at Ferdinand's car, but the driver swerved to avoid it, and it detonated in front of the following vehicle. Nobody was killed, but several people were injured. Princip was the next in line, but the Archduke's car turned around and fled to the town hall. The plot had seemingly failed, but having decided to take an impromptu visit to see the injured in hospital, Ferdinand set out on the road again, Having made a wrong turn, his driver began to reverse, all of this fortuitously unfolding under the gaze of Princip, who'd been loitering round outside a delicatessen. He stepped forward, 
fire two shots and finish the job. A mob of outraged onlookers attacked and disarmed Princip. He swallowed a capsule of cyanide, but the dose was too low and he survived. Kabrinovich also tried to kill himself, first by swallowing a similarly weak dose of cyanide, and then by trying to drown himself in a river that, to his surprise, was less than six inches deep. Both men were arrested. Austria decided they'd had enough of the Serbs and prepared for war. Globally, it wouldn't have been a big deal if Russia hadn't offered to back the Serbs. The Germans, thinking the Russians wouldn't follow through, called their bluff and backed Austro-Hungary. The Russians, though, were serious, and pretty quickly, France, Britain, the Ottoman Empire, Italy, Japan, Bulgaria and Romania came into the fray, and a single act of violence had spawned the deadliest war in history. Back in Serbia, the moderate Prime Minister Nikola Pasic had been tipped off about the plot and had given orders for the assailants to be arrested. Presumably due to the influence of the Black Hand, his orders had been ignored, and as he feared, the worst had happened. Princip and a score of alleged co-conspirators were arrested and tried. The Austrian prosecutors tried to portray the act as a state-sponsored terrorist attack from Serbia. Awkwardly, though, none of the accused were actually Serbian citizens. They were all Bosnian Serbs or Croats. As ever, Dmitrievich had given himself plausible deniability with the selection of his assassins. During the trial, Kabrinovich described himself as an anarchist, although, of course, the Black Hand Oath forced him to conceal his identity. Princip, though, while claiming he wasn't lied to one country, made his intentions very clear. His motivation, he said, was to create a unified Yugoslavian state. Despite his obvious guilt and lack of remorse, Princip was spared execution on a technicality. Nobody knew how old he was. The Austrians had never kept good records of subjugated people, so there was a question as to whether he was old enough to face capital punishment. In the end, it was determined that he was a minor, and he was sent to prison where he suffered beatings and starvation before dying in 1918. His underage comrades, Kabrinovich and Grabitz, both died of tuberculosis while imprisoned in 1916. Major Tankosic, who'd provided the weapons, died fighting for the Serbian army in 1915. His grave was later desecrated by triumphant Austrians, who took pictures of his corpse as a propaganda exercise to undermine the Serbs. Dmitrievich survived the initial backlash after the assassination, and even found himself promoted to colonel in 1916. But Prime Minister Pasic, who had tried to stop the attack before unsuccessfully engaging in peace talks with Austria, resolved to rid his country of the Black Hand group. In late 1916, Dmitrievich and a handful of his allies were arrested on trumped-up charges of attempting to assassinate the Crown Prince Alexander, a man who had previously bankrolled the militant group. All were found guilty and executed. A year later, with the Black Hand seemingly consigned to history, the victorious powers of World War I met at Versailles, France, and produced a roadmap for the future of Europe. The Axis empires of Germany, Austro-Hungary and the Ottomans were broken up and a plethora of new independent states appeared on the map. An area comprising Serbia, 
Bosnia, Kosovo, North Macedonia, Slovenia, Croatia, and Montenegro was forged together in a new pan-Southern Slavic state named Yugoslavia. But while the Black Hound's ultimate dream might have been realized, the following decades would show that the unified state was as bitterly divided by ethnic and religious tensions as the states it emerged from. Eight decades later, Yugoslavia was torn apart by violence and civil war. Well, stone the flaming crows. It's time for Dan to do the Harry. Watch out for the next podcast and follow all Dan's activities at www.danielmainwaring.com.